Welcome to NuclearCast, the official podcast of the Animal Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauper, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a wonderful guest. Dr. Howard Hall is the director for the University of Tennessee Institute for Nuclear Security. He holds a joint appointment with the Consolidated Nuclear Security, Y-12, uh, National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And of course, he spent... Uh, about the first two decades of his career at my favorite weapons lab, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And he's joining us today so that we can talk about developing an educational program that can help meet the, that human capital requirement. And, you know, we've talked about this on several previous episodes. How do we recruit? How do we retain? Well, now we're going to talk about how do you build the skills and knowledge needed to meet that requirement. So, Howard, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Adam. So you run a program, and you you left Livermore. You came to Tennessee, and I, I'm, you know, this is actually a really hard podcast to do uh, with you because I got my PhD from the University of Alabama which of course means I naturally hate you, everybody you work with, and all of the people that are Tennessee graduates. And I blame you for when Alabama was on uh, probation uh, a decade or so ago, before the Saban years. But we'll, we'll, we'll manage to, to make it through this podcast. Now, <laughs> you, you left Lawrence Livermore. You came to Tennessee and you've stood up a nuclear security program that is, you know, it's building the talent that Y-12 needs and, and you know, it's building the talent for the FA-52 career field. Tell us, how did you go from a lab to a university and build that program? I mean, what did it take to do that? Well, it's an excellent question. Um, it It absolutely requires buy-in by the institution. And so uh, I was fortunate enough in the early discussions with the university uh, and and with the, the federal facilities in the, in the Valley, uh, National Lab and, and Y-12, uh, to come in with the intent to build this program. Now, part of the logic behind why it was, was so obvious to me that it was needed is in my role at Livermore, uh, I was responsible for uh, managing and executing programs, hiring staff, and so forth. And it became very clear uh, that all of the national lab communities were basically robbing each other for staff because there were not enough people coming out of uh, graduate school or in, or in the case of uh, undergrads uh, with any knowledge or, or interest in this field. And 
we can do a pretty decent job uh, in the laboratory community of enticing people in once we've got them. But it, that also adds a you know, year, two-year startup period where they're really just learning what they should have learned in school. So I, I, I had that conversation. Uh, the university agreed to let me run with this. Uh, so it, before I even joined the faculty, I had put together my first for a course outline for one of our core courses in the, in the nuclear security curriculum. Uh, and then they've tolerated me ever since. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so our, our curriculum uh, is in the graduate program. Uh, we are, are looking at adding material, and we have added some component uh, in the undergraduate curriculum. Uh, but the undergraduate curriculum is actually a little harder to deal with because it's much more regulated than the graduate curriculum. But uh, we've now put uh, half a dozen or so courses. Uh, we've, we have formed this campus-wide unit called the Institute for Nuclear Security, which allows us to reach outside of nuclear engineering and into other departments uh, in a sort of formal way uh, to bring in the, the skill sets and the, the coursework that we need because it's not all just nuclear engineering. There's a lot of other demands uh, that require uh, you know, other technical fields, policy fields, so forth. So in a past life, I was the director of the School of Advanced Nuclear Deterrence Studies at Kirtland Air Force Base when we were co-located with Sandia. So we were able to build a graduate program that included, you know, weapons physics, weapons effects, policy, strategy. And we could do that because, you know, our school was, you know, we had a skiff. We were in a vault. We could talk about anything we wanted to. And it was sort of, you know, the best you could possibly do. It was sort of a gold-plated program. But as you try to build a program at a public university and, you know, and, and as I've thought about doing something similar, one of the things that you're, you're often challenged with is there's not a ton of guys like you who have, you know, a lot of experience at a lab and who therefore know and understand the work. Because a lot of your faculty have a you know a traditional academic background and have worked on those in those areas that are sort of more conducive to that career field. So how do you take that specialized knowledge and skills that are required? And this is it's not just physics or nuclear engineering or chemistry, it's all of the career fields, political science, it's all of them where you have this challenge and it's sort of the challenge with building what, I mean, I call it professional education that is sort of very tailored to the types of work that you might want to do. How do you sort of overcome the faculty challenge where brilliant people, smart people, capable people, but they don't necessarily have the experience and background in those fields that are going to be most useful to the labs. How do you get that component into the program? So part of what we do is we build the linkages between our faculty and folks at the National Lab community, uh, as well as the production side of uh, the MSA complex. So uh, you know, we, have, we have folks who have 
come to join our faculty who spent time, for example, uh, we have one gentleman who postdoc at Livermore. We have uh, uh, a couple of folks who are ex-nuclear Navy. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of experience, particularly in, in the nuclear engineering field, is fairly broadly relevant to what we're, we're doing. Uh, certainly when you get uh, out of the, the hard, more hardcore engineering where that, that coupling with industry and, and government is, is strong, it, it becomes a more of a challenge. Uh, we try to address that by, again, on a, on a sort of person-by-person basis, building relationships between faculty and uh, professionals at the uh, either at one twelve or at ORNL or elsewhere. Uh, that that certainly takes time, and and it involves a fair bit of commitment on both the university side as well as the the labs and plants. But uh, when it works, it works well. So so let me give you an example. Um, the, I, I mentioned the, the first curriculum I started uh, while I was still in the airplane. Uh, that course is our nuclear engineering uh, NE530 class, which is nuclear security science and analysis. It's basically an introduction class to the concept of how do you secure nuclear material and nuclear technology uh, to prevent it from its loss. And so we, uh, we actually conduct that course and we've done this. Well, this will actually be our 15th year that we're, uh, we're teaching it uh, or 15th offering, I guess, of the class uh, with Y-12 personnel. And so our, our Y-12 colleagues bring in not just people who have security, uh, you know, physical security or, or similar uh, skill sets, but they also bring in folks like the Office of Secure Transport, who's responsible for moving materials. Uh, they bring in the vulnerability analysis team. Uh, they we we bring in cyber. Uh, we bring in someone to talk about human reliability, and so it, it really helps to have that partnership that supplements things that you know we wouldn't necessarily have a, a full time faculty member in, in any of those single areas. Uh, but with the, the help of the laboratory, it uh, it it really augments our capabilities. Plus, I think one of the really important things that our partners bring is they can tell students what it's like to really be doing the job. And so we we've had a, uh, a number of folks who, uh, for example, in the NE five thirty class. You know, on any given weekend, they're probably somewhere else on the planet helping another country uh, test or improve their security programs. Um, we've had people, uh, for example, who uh, we, we have an export control class uh, that we have taught with uh, ONL. Uh, and the people who supported that are the people who support DOE's export control uh, decision making. So again, you get you get a lot of, of ground truth into the curriculum, which which I think is critical. Yeah, that's that's pretty exceptional. It's it's one of those things that, you know, as I've looked around, because I did an analysis 
of all of the programs around the country that sort of offered these kinds of programs. And in particular, I was sort of looking at programs that were explained, you know, how, how do you build a nuclear operator? You know, for me as a career Air Force guy, I was like, how do I build a better air, nuclear Air Force officer? And there was really only one program that was sort of offered that kind of useful program. And and you, you've got a lot of programs out there that are, they're often called, you know, non-proliferation and disarmament. That's sort of a, sort of a standard term for some of these grad, specialized graduate degree programs. But for the people actually working in the field, you know, there's, the programs are limited. So what you're doing seems to be pretty exceptional. Do you, are there other programs like the one that you've built that are out there? Maybe I just don't know about them. Or have you guys built sort of a niche that, you know, that's your space and you own it and nobody's replicated it? Well, uh, there are certainly some other programs out there, um, and, and we partner with those folks quite often as well. Uh, there's a um, James Martin Center at the Monterey Institute, or whatever they're called now. I think they just changed their name. Um, that is more the sort of traditional non-proliferation arms control think tank that you were describing. Uh, there's an uh, effort at the University of New Mexico that we've partnered with, that's that your Sandia colleagues are involved in that as well. Uh, that is, uh, we've actually had some discussions that they haven't come to fruition yet of, of doing some shared curricula between the, the universities. Uh, Texas A&M has a, uh, uh, they call it uh, NISPE, which I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's primarily focused on proliferation. Uh, safeguards and, and, and non-pro. Uh, so, you know, I, I think every place will have some distinctive flavor uh, that is driven by the by the interests and backgrounds of the faculty. Uh, but you know, we're, we're very proud of the the our our success in getting people from the the, the complex to come in and, and talk and help teach courses. Now, we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to ask you a question, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and give it to you ahead of time. So as you think about what you would like to add to your program, what you, you, know, you may not have but would be useful to have, when we come back, I want you to tell me what that is. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Dr. Howard Hall from the University of Tennessee. So, Howard, what would you like to see your program add? What What are you missing? Well, I think the... The, the thing that we need to do is we need to maintain currency with what are the actual issues. Uh, and so um, uh, a continue, continue to have a rich uh, set of collaborations is important, but there's also emerging uh, uh, disciplines and threats that are uh, going to be hugely important for 
the U.S. national security. Uh, AI is, is a big one that is, is developing. The, our campus has an AI initiative. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nascent. It's, it's in its beginning phase. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's going to be important. Uh, we, proximity makes it very easy for us to work with both Y12 and ORNL. Uh, I'd like to get some of my old colleagues from Livermore and some folks from the, the other, uh, other labs involved, uh, even if it's just guest lectures or remote lectures and so forth. Um, we're to the point now where our, we, you know, we've been running this for a little over a decade now and our alumni are starting to populate positions uh, in both the laboratories as well as the, the federal workforce where they, they're now in a position where it makes sense for them to be coming to give a lecture or a seminar uh, and talk about, you know, what, what does, you know, what does Savannah River do and how does Savannah River, uh, you know, manage its mission space and what are its critical needs. Um, we also have worked with folks who are uh, trying to uh, establish more uh, sort of programs like mine. Uh, one of the things that, that you know, has always been one of my, my mantras is, you know, we can build the best thing on the planet here, but we can't populate all the people that are needed for the, the larger community. And so it, it can't be a single university thing. It's got to be uh, a more open, aggressive sharing approach than sort of the traditional, uh, you know, niche academic program. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. So if if you could influence other universities, you know, you've mentioned A and M and Monterey and a few other places. If you could influence other universities and you could sort of do whatever you wanted to do, you know, you were this influential guru who people just you know worshipped at you know everything you said and did it. What would you have them do? What would you What would you like to see? Do you have certain places you would like to? Do you want you know Berkeley's had always had a strong tie to Livermore. I mean, how how many Berkeley graduates are are filling roles at Livermore? So that that there's a strong tie there. Tennessee and and Oak Ridge, there's a strong tie there. You know, UNM, you know, in New Mexico and Sandia have always had a strong tie, and you know, folks also make their way up to Los Alamos from UNM. But are there other things that, that you would like to see, uh, other places, other types of programs? Sure. So I think the, um, the, the again, proximity has, it, has its own value. But there is also, uh, I think, a need for, particularly at the, at the federal sponsor level, uh, both uh, civilian and military, to influence faculty uh, the old-fashioned way by by inviting them up to spend a sabbatical, uh, maybe at Stratcom or sabbatical at, at the Pentagon uh, or in the Forestall Building, uh, where the, the faculty come in and get to sort of support and participate in the actual mission 
which really helps you understand then better what are the needs and what are the what are the things that our our curriculum needs to cover uh, and, and you know some of those are, are positives and negatives what are what are not needed is also useful so I, I I mean it's not unique to my program but I I think if we could build tighter links there at at the sort of the, the main mission level uh, and it, it's going to be hard because you know getting breaking a faculty member free for you know a semester is not a trivial thing at a university. Uh, getting them into a facility, particularly a facility that handles classified information, has its own burdens. Uh, and then, you know, I, probably the worst thing to do would be to do that with the faculty member excited, engaged, and then let it die because eventually people will stop responding to it. So I think that would, I mean, if, if I were keen for a day, uh, I would, I would focus on that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a, it's sort of a great point in it. I spent most of my career as a member of the faculty down at Maxwell Air Force Base and, uh, you know, with the Air Force. And I remember, you know, I wanted to go to the National Security Council and was looking to try to be seconded up there. And even as a, as a faculty member within the Department of Defense, it was quite challenging to make those things happen. And so I can I can empathize with the challenge that you know we would have to take civilian faculty um, and and you know send them to to NNSA or send them to Stratcom or because of the federal bureaucracy and the way the civilian personnel system works is it's. It's not the most conducive, but it, you make a great point. It's certainly something that we would be really beneficial to give those faculty some real experience that would, you know, benefit both them and then benefit students and benefit the government for, you know, having some interesting new ideas. And so that's certainly a good idea. Now, is there another sort of aspirational goal that you would have well uh the other the other thing that that sort of is a underlying theme in nuclear security is it's not just a u.s problem and so it's really a global problem uh we've done quite a bit of work uh much of it was sponsored in yearly by the state department and and now the uh nsa is, is continuing to carry that ball to support the development of educational programs, particularly in the area of material and technology security uh, globally. And so there's a, a network of educators that we are uh, a charter member of uh, that the IEA uh, sort of hosts uh, called the International Nuclear Security Educators Network. Uh, we, we work INS with other universities, uh, many of the ones we just talked about here in the U.S., to figure out how to harvest best practices, curricula, uh, and recommendations uh, that, that can be taken globally. Uh, you know, there, are, there are a wealth of challenges to, to do this uh, because every country is in a different place. Uh, and then, you know, some, some, some countries are having uh, 
little troubles like Ukraine. So it's kind of hard to do anything with Ukraine these days. Uh, and then some some countries are not necessarily our friends, and they would view this with suspicion. But uh, you know the the outreach, you know, because if particularly in the in the event of an act of nuclear terrorism, it it doesn't matter where it's at. It's going to be a disaster. And so, you know, if, if we are highly confident that we can keep it out of our shores, that's great for us. But it doesn't mean that uh, an act of terrorism somewhere else wouldn't be devastating to the, the global economy and the global political order. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a good point. And, and you mentioned nuclear terrorism. And we did an interview with Garrett Heronsack, who is uh, the president at, out at the Nevada National Security Site. And so just out of curiosity, do you guys work with with the guys out at, at NNSS? And is that part of your sort of network of folks that you're working with and potentially feeding your graduates to? We, we've done some some work with them. Uh, it hasn't been as extensive as with the labs. Um, you know, a lot of what NNSS does is provides hosting for experimental programs and, and things like that from the laboratory community. And so, you know, we, we've had students who are working on programs through one of the labs spending months at the test site because they were running experiments. Sure. Uh, and so it's, it's a little bit of a different beast. Yeah. So now it's that time in the show. I, I didn't tell you this ahead of time, but I have a magic lamp. I'll pull my magic lamp out and it, I have a genie named Bob. Now, when I rub my lamp, Bob pops out and he's already given me my three wishes but he, he's agreed to give all guests on NucleCast three wishes related to the topic we're discussing. So it's a pretty narrow uh, span of your wish list. And you've already said some of the stuff you would like, but if you now have a wish, you don't have to convince anybody. Bob will make it happen. <laughs> what three wishes would you have? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, Certainly, I, I think the first one would be, you know, breaking down those walls between the traditional pipelines of academia and and government and and actual mission operators uh, would would be the highest one. Um, you know, it, it, I would be remiss here at Tennessee if I didn't wish that we had a nice uh, victory on the third Saturday in October. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I, I would certainly wish that that we do everything we can in our power as as both educators and professionals to make sure that we do such a good job on nuclear security that nuclear power can reassert itself as as the as the solution to a lot of our challenging power needs. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should mention that because I, before I started doing Nuclecast, I really, I I knew a little bit about nuclear power just as a former Navy guy. And so I, you know, I had some knowledge about reactors, 
but we've had probably six to 10 or so episodes that specifically talked about sort of third and fourth generation reactors and how small they are, how safe they are. And so it's really pretty interesting. And, and it's, it's kind of sad that the, the general public doesn't understand just how far we've come from those first and second gen reactors that, you know, we're at three mile Island and, you know, or across the country to what is phenomenal technology with tremendous safety in our modern reactors. And, you know, at a time, you know, it's one of the things where, you know, for California where they're mandating no, you know, internal combustion engine cars can be sold after, you know, 2028 or whenever it is, but yet they're still having brownouts. I'm sort of wondering how they're going to make that happen without nuclear power. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, one of the more interesting uh, uh, analyses Lawrence Livermore puts out every year is basically a map of uh, the, the flow of production and consumption of energy uh, in the U.S. And there's an awful lot of uh, fossil fuel-based transportation energy that I don't know how, how you get away from that. Uh, certainly, uh, I mean, you, you know, battery-powered cars, but the battery has to be charged. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that battery-powered aircraft make a lot of sense. Uh, there's a certain weight problem with that. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's going to be interesting. Now, we we are looking forward to TVA hosting a SMR demonstration uh, up in the Oak Ridge area on the old Clinch uh, River reactor site. Uh, and then one of our alums is working on the, uh, the SMR concept for Project Pele, uh, which will be a, a, an air base in Alaska that uh, is, is consumes a phenomenal amount of coal right now uh, and, and will be one of the first DOD test cases. Yeah, it'll be, you know, this is perhaps one of the opportunities for the DOD to to, you know, really sort of help kickstart and jump a technology yes. that sort of struggled to find a home. And, you know, with the, the challenge of building, I think we just had the first, uh, you know, reactor under new reactor under construction in 30 or 40 years. So, you know, there was here recently, I read something, but I can't remember exactly what, what it was, but, or maybe it was the first approval, something to that effect. But there's so much that, you know, f- for those who want to reduce consumption of, of fossil fuels, coal plants and stuff, nuclear is such a phenomenal option. Absolutely. I wish we could talk about it more. Well, uh, I'll, I'll happily hook you up with the folks in our faculty who are in the SMR uh, reactor physics world, and they'd, they'd love to chat with you too. Well, you've got a deal. We'll have it. So you, the listeners out there, know we're going to have another episode. This will be our topic. So stand by for that. It'll come soon. But for now, Howard, th- thanks for joining us. This was a, a great topic. Uh, I hate to say it, but Tennessee's doing something right. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I thank, guess good on you. <laughs> thank you very much, Adam. Uh, so thanks for joining us. It was it was a pleasure. 
And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of NucleCast. And stay tuned for our next episode. Well, we just had a, oh man, that was a good interview. Uh, I know some, you know, for some of you, discussing, you know, graduate programs and universities might not be the most exciting topic. You might want to talk about nuclear reactors. You might want to talk about what the Russians or the Chinese are doing. But how we build that talent so that we can eventually beat these guys or so that we can build, you know, fourth and fifth generation reactors so that we can, you know, solve the the electric electricity problem, you know, that seems to be upon us or coming down the pipe. That's a a really important thing to talk about. So it was good to see, you know, Howard, you know, lay out what his program is and what they're doing. You know, for me personally, I just wish it would have been at the University of Alabama instead of Tennessee. You know, I mean, at least they're not LSU. That's 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 the one saving grace. But, you know, it was great to talk to Howard. It's a great program. And hopefully you'll if you're in the market, you know, give them a look and, and see if it might be the right one for you. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frontal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.